Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Petko Stoyanov and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Petko Stoyanov. Pecco. Rachel. Happy you know, day. This is happy day. Happy. <laughs> you know, we're going to be talking about, I guess, my favorite topics, which is just supply chain in general. Just yes. to, I think we underestimate how much supply chain could impact us. And we always think of supply chain as physical. But in this case, we're going to talk about the virtual supply chain and how it applies. Yes. And we're going to talk about breaking things, too. So without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Jonathan Knudsen. He's the head of global research for the Cybersecurity Research Center at Synopsys. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Petco. I'm glad to be here. Now, I mean, where to even start? Because we're going to talk software, we're going to talk supply chain, we're going to talk breaking things. But should we start at the beginning, Petco? Uh, What's the beginning? I mean, we got March Madness right now. Can we start there? (laughs) That's the beginning, right? Everything starts with sports. That's a really good point. We are in the middle of sports betting mania. And I think you guys recently put out a research report on such things, yes? We did. I was going to say, speaking of broken, uh, how about everybody's brackets? But yeah, we'll leave that alone. Yeah, we did. We did a research report. We looked at sports and betting apps in the Android store. And and the findings were pretty interesting. Um, I, I guess maybe before we do that, maybe we should talk about how people make software, and then that'll yes. maybe help us understand like what what the supply chain problems Absolutely. are. Absolutely, because I think it'll it'll frame up just how horrifying some of these findings were as well. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. So software, you know, no matter what kind of software it is, it could, so it could be a mobile app, it could be a in a nuclear power plant, or it could be in your car, wherever it is, people write software in fundamentally the same way. And, and the way that they do it is they don't write a lot of it, they they borrow a lot of it, uh, using open source components. So these are little pieces of software, or sometimes little, sometimes big, that are developed by a community of volunteers, most of the time. And and they are made available to the world under certain terms, under a license. Uh, and and the reason people love to use these to make software is that it helps them get to market faster. It helps them build the thing that they're trying to build faster because they're using these pre, sort of pre-built components and stacking them up. And then and then they write a little bit of code that sort of you know glues everything together, and it's the specific parts of that piece of software. So. So that's fine. Open source is is amazing. It, there are amazing projects out there, and everybody does this. So Synopsys has this OSRA report about open source every year, and they find, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it's like high 80s or 90% of every single code base that they looked at has open source in it. It might even be higher than that. I should check that. But it, it, basically, everybody does this. And the actual percentage of each project that is open source code is also very high. So so that's cool that you can do that. But also, you know, you have to think of, you have to manage your components, your open source properly. It's like, so sometimes we talk about uh, 
making software in terms of automobile manufacturing or airplane manufacturing. And if, if you think about an airplane, it's got a gazillion parts in it. It's got engines and it's got wheels and seats and rivets and, and all this stuff. And um, if you are building a piece of software and you're just throwing these open source packages into your software, it's kind of like if Boeing or somebody found a bunch of parts by the side of the road and they're like, hey, these look cool. Let's put them in the airplane. So you have to manage your components right. Uh, and, and that's what we talk about as the supply chain, the software supply chain. That's, that's actually part of it. The whole supply chain is even bigger and includes the tools that you use to assemble the software and wherever you're deploying it, however you're packaging it. It's the whole schlemiel. But a lot of it is about these open source components. So that was a lot. Yes. It, I think the, the idea of Frankenstein kind of came to mind. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just thinking about having parts laying on the side that you just find in some warehouse. Like, oh, that, this one looks close enough. Let me just put this in. And honestly, yep, I think yep. software developers do that. They're like, well, I need something that works. Let me try this. Oh, it fits just right as a screw. <laughs> yeah, that, or That's totally fair. And, and, uh, and when you first think about it, you're like, wow, those developers, they're really irresponsible. But they're not. They're just not. They just don't have the mindset right. for it because somebody has told them, go build this thing that does this yep. stuff. And that's what they do. And, and so um, that's part of the challenge with well, with the supply chain and with security in general, is that um, the the people building this stuff don't necessarily have the motivations to do all the security things or look at the whole supply chain or, or whatever you need to do. So I, I think that's like the fundamental answer to why uh, software security is such a challenge all the time, is that um, you want to build the thing, you want it to do something, and you're going as fast as you can. And if you're going to make it you know, safer or more secure, you have to have the security baked into this entire process. And that's that that's another place where airplane manufacturing is a great analogy because nobody builds an airplane without safety being like part of the whole process. So from the very beginning, when you're, you know, making designs to when you're selecting your components and when you're like testing your components and, and vetting them and making sure they're good. So when you're assembling this thing, Every step of the way, you're thinking about safety and security in software is the same way, or it has to be the same way. It's not, but should be. nobody should ever talk about software development without talking about security at the exact same time. I, I would argue it's not and just security, it's legal. And the reason I say that is when you look at open source, some of them are saying, hey, you can't copy this unless you open source all your code. And imagine yep. one little developer that says, oh, I took this, didn't read the license, and then I put it in my code. And then down the chain, you know, maybe a couple years later, they realize, oh, wait, that open source wasn't just normal open source. It was actually something that requires us to say we can't even use it without opening sourcing our whole solution. And That's right. Think, they, they call those licenses copyleft or, or sometimes viral licenses. Yeah. yeah so, so managing your open source, managing your supply chain, you know, step one is you have to know what you're using. Yeah. And sometimes that's a challenge, but that's step one. And so you use a tool, software composition analysis tool, SCA, and it will sort of go pawing through your, your project and figure out what components you're using. And then to, to manage risk from open source properly, you have to look at the licenses. That's one aspect. And you also have to look at known vulnerabilities. So... Each of these components can have its own vulnerabilities in it, 
which are tracked as CVEs. And so uh, a good SCA tool will tell you what you have. It will give you that visibility, first of all, and then it'll tell you which components have vulnerabilities and which might have licenses that aren't compatible with how you're trying to release your software. Is, so you have to manage both things. Is there a threshold like um, I'm okay with 70% vulnerability in my stack or, you know, like is, is there something like that out lingering where when people are putting things together? There is. And, and, and I guess we would call that a policy. Like if I'm building, uh, I don't know, like a, a piece of software for a traffic light, I'm going to have some policy about how I build it what kinds of testing I do, what kinds of testing results are acceptable yeah. for me to release that software and, and so on. And so policy is going to vary depending on the, the person that's building it and or the organization, but also the specific application. And, and so in a larger sense, this is all about managing risk, which, which is one of those things that's really important, but it's really hard to nail down. So, um, uh, like when you buy a car, you'd be like, oh, I want to buy a safe car. Is it safe? And, and, and that's a nonsensical question, right? There are, there are more safe cars and less safe cars. There's more secure software and less secure software, but you never, you're never actually safe, right? It, it, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I'm sure insurance actuaries know this, right? They know all the ways you can die and what the probabilities are. And, and you can do things that make you less likely to die sooner, like you can not smoke, and, and but you can never eliminate right. risk. So it's the same thing with software where, um, you know, it's up to the organization and the specific application to say, okay, here's how we're going to do it. Here's the testing we're going to do. Here's the results that are acceptable. Are, aren't we more from a safety standpoint, aren't cars today safer than they used to be 20 years ago? That's that's what I've been told. <laughs> but could we? Would you say that software is more secure than it than it was 20 years ago? Jeez, I don't know. Internet connected I, software. I want to phrase it: internet connected software, because I think 20 years ago some of it was disconnected. <laughs> some of it was disconnected, and you know, I yes, I would say um, uh, in the world in general, software is better and harder to break, but. But there are always, and and I think like really big names that make software and that, that's like their whole business, they're mostly doing things right. Like they know how to do it right and they'll, they've got the resources to, to make it happen. But it's, it's so easy for things to go wrong. Yeah. And then you think to yourself, well, why, why are cars safer? And, and some of it has to do with government regulation right. and governments trying to come to terms with software and trying to, I mean, they've been trying for a right. while to set down guidelines and maybe make rules, but they never quite get to making rules because it's it's just so hard to define. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the, what I kind of see with software is we now have more software apps that exist like in the last year than we did, you know, just the amount of velocity we have in applications. Yes. By the nature of it, even if we're getting more secure, the sheer number of new apps that come out constantly, it's hard to keep up with that. And it looks like we're getting less secure globally when you look at the quantity. But as a percentage, we're yeah. probably getting more secure every day. It's just that there's now more apps. I mean, before you just had to worry about applications on your computer. Now you have to worry about applications on your phone and everywhere else. And each of them are different. And if you have an Android, it's different than an iPhone. And it's different from an Apple versus Windows. Mm -hmm. The velocity has definitely increased. And Yes, yes. It's insane. I mean, one of the things I love about software and the internet is 
democratizing force, right? So anyone with a laptop, even a kind of a crappy laptop these days, and an internet connection can learn to program and build something. And that's amazing, you know, amazing. But at the same time, it's dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) If you build something and it become successful and there's significant value in it somewhere, then attackers will come for you. I'm thinking of the people who created apps for like certain iPhones or Androids and somehow it just became a hit, you know, and they didn't think about security. It was just a developer saying, hey, let me create a game. And that little game, you know, maybe flying a little bird around, you know, became a huge hit. And not saying there's vulnerabilities there, but just in general that, you know, there was copycats that started existing from that and it became harder and harder to tell yeah. what's the real one. Right. Yeah. Some years ago, we we did an analysis on a flashlight app for Android. Mm-hmm. All it has to do is turn the light on and off, right? right? And, and it was connecting to servers all over the internet. And I think mostly ad networks, we hope, but you know, it, that's the thing, right? I mean, when you're, when you get stuff for free, you are the product somehow. And so either your information is being monetized or, or something worse. But uh, yeah, we, Cybersecurity Research Center, CERC, we had, we did some disclosures, uh, I think it was last year, about mouse and keyboard apps for Android. And the idea is that you can use your Android device as a remote mouse or keyboard for your computer. And hmm. And, and to be honest, some of these looked like they might have been like student projects or something. But again, democratizing, right? So people wrote software, they got it into the Android store, and, and, and there were like one or two million downloads of these things altogether. And they were totally not written with security in mind at all. So, you know, if you went to the coffee shop and you were trying to use this thing, somebody could pretty easily start running commands on your computer. Um, so... Yeah, it's, I don't know what to say. It's tough. It's all about functionality. You know, we just want it to function right, right? Right, just just running to get there. Now, can we talk a little bit, come back to the research though, because like I said, I was reading yeah. it and my, like, my mind was blown. So you guys were looking at sports betting apps, which I think a lot of people are about to be really bummed here. <laughs> you know, particularly with March Madness, right? And Super Bowl and all the other things people are betting yep. on this time of year. What did you guys find? I'd love for you to break that down for our listeners. So we did a a pretty slim slice of analysis. So, you know, like you go to the doctor and they can do MRIs and they can do x-rays and they can do ultrasounds and all this stuff. So what we we have a tool that does SEA, um, software composition analysis, except the thing that's cool about this one is we don't need the source code. So we can just run it on the, the Android app and it figures out what the open source components are inside. So we ran this tool. And if you're really gonna do like uh, secure development properly, you've got you've got like five different kinds of tools and it's all baked into the process and, and yada, yada, yada. But we ran this one tool and we found which open source components had been used in these apps. And then, and then we talked about that. The way we selected the apps was we went to the Android store, the Google Play store, we searched for sports and betting apps, and then we just picked everything that had over 500K downloads. And then we eliminated one because it wasn't really related. Uh, so we we have these 10 apps, and and we ran this tool on all of them, and we found a lot of, of very old open source components. So some of them, I think one of them dated all the way back to 2010, which is just, you know, in 
in dog years in, in internet years it's like yeah. a million and 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 i should say we talked about open source components having licenses and open source components having known vulnerabilities and with the vulnerabilities usually the open source team will get notified about the vulnerability they'll fix it they'll release a new version. So most of the time, what you're trying to do with your open source supply chain is keep all your components up to right. date so that they don't have these known vulnerabilities that apply to them. The other thing to know is that even if a component has a vulnerability, it's not necessarily exposed in the, in the app, in the application that it's part of. So, so a component that dates back to 2010 has a lot of known vulnerabilities <laughs> in it. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily exposed in the right. app, but it's definitely an ind indication that the development team is probably not doing this analysis, probably not paying attention to their supply yeah. chain. So, so I think that's the really concerning part. And and overall, these 10 apps that we looked at, in terms of number of vulnerable components and number of known vulnerabilities associated with those. Uh, scored really high. Very um, high. You know, I, I wrote down the numbers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think um, so. so. What did I wrote down? Let's see. Average number of components, 125, and per app, and then the average number of vulnerabilities per app. I feel like you need a drum roll, please. 179. <laughs> I know. It's astonishing. Yikes. And again, not necessarily exposed, but. But in the report, we do actually look at one of the apps that, you know, it seems like they are paying attention and and the number of vulnerabilities in that one is is in the single digits. It's very wow. low. So it can be done. You just have to, a, a lot of times development teams don't know, you know, they're like, right. okay, we build stuff. We'll build stuff for you. <laughs> Let's go. And, and, and so sometimes it's just an awareness issue. And it's, it's really interesting, too, because, I mean, we, we see all of these kind of vulnerabilities and, you know, they kind of come into the public awareness. And some companies seem to be really good at addressing these things and other companies so much. You know, it's there's there's no real accountability per se. Right. I mean, it, it's kind of up to like that company and they can like, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, I think we'll fix the next release. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> Nothing to see here. It's just not the software you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, it's um and, and that's sort of been a longstanding issue with software is that from the very beginning, I think all the end user license agreements, you know, that stuff that you click through you when you read? install something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it disclaims all liability. Right. Like you know, this software is for you and it might work and it might not. Good luck. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking back to your flashlight example you had earlier. I mean, I've seen those apps and they'll, it'll, it'll, when you install it, it'll ask you, do you want to give it all these permissions? And it's yes. going to ask for not just your camera. It's going to ask for your photos, your files, everything. And it's your like email, all your apps yes. installed. <laughs> Well, I don't know if I had email, but I remember like, you know, all your apps running and wants yeah. visibility and you're like, this is a flashlight app. Why do you need access to yeah. all of that? My favorite, fine-grained location. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? You, you know, I only want the app used at night. So <laughs> if it could figure out time of day and everything else and where I'm located, it makes perfect sense. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. So now how do people, so so what are people going to do about this? Because I, I think about all the apps that I use, Jonathan. I mean, we, we talked about this 
I think last episode, you know, I've got like the the app graveyard. I'm an app hoarder on my phone, and you know, and it's like Furbo. I don't know how safe Furbo is. That's a camera in my house, so I could talk to my dogs when I'm away from the house. Mm -hmm. Rachel, TikTok. (laughs) I love TikTok. I love it. (laughs) I mean, capybara talk right now, all about capybaras right now. But, you know, how do you, what are people supposed to do? I mean, what is your lay consumer supposed to do about this? That's the question. And, and that's a tough one. So, you know, I do PR comments periodically and, and that's the same question. Like, okay, you've told me a bunch of interesting stuff and I learned something today, but what do I do? You know, and, um, you know, what do you do? You throw your phone away, you go live in the woods and go off the grid. Hey, that's my plan. That, Don't take my plan away. Yeah. <laughs> you're taking your wine and you're going. <laughs> and that's, well, that's, that's part of the thing, right? Like software is everywhere. Like my, my, uh, one of the things I repeat and people get bored with me about is, and software is the infrastructure for all other critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And and you cannot overstate the importance of software now. Like it's everywhere. And in terms of critical infrastructure, it's behind, you know, the finance, yes. finance sector and the water sector and the food sector and transportation, you know, anything. Um, and this is not really a new idea. Like Mark Andreessen a dozen years ago said software is eating the world. And then like a dozen years before that, Watts Humphrey said every organization is a software organization. And it's just, it's true. Like, and so as a consumer, what do you do? You, you cross your fingers and you hope for the best because. It's a hope's a strategy. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Faith-based security, we call it. (laughs) It's going to be okay because you believe it's going to be okay. And, and obviously that doesn't work for everybody. Right. You know, people have problems, but, need to rebuild credit but, or their identity or whatever. And it, it's tough. Jonathan, can, um, I, can I throw a more philosophical conversation about this? Cause I'm kind of curious, like, you know, it's like me, I kind of view software, like I have a house. I don't always lock my front door, let's say hypothetically, right. like, mm-hmm. is it, it my should. responsibility to lock my door to prevent folks from coming in or should there be better enforcement on the internet that, or better policy that has repercussions if you break into someone's house? Yeah, it's a combination of things, right? So um, wh- why why doesn't something bad happen every time you leave your front door open? Yeah. It's a combination of things. So there, there's the risk of the place that you live, There's and then there are legal deterrents. So everybody knows that if you're caught going into a house and stealing stuff, that probably going to go to jail. So so it's a combination of things. Software and the internet makes it so much harder because, you know, because the best attacks are completely remote. They could be anywhere in the world. And, and that in legal terms involves different jurisdictions that have different rules. And so the likelihood of being caught or prosecuted or imprisoned is really low. So I think, I think that's part of the problem. So the internet has no jurisdiction is what you just told me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No accountability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or it's difficult to tell where folks are coming from. Right. So is it right? Was it really, you know, John, that broke into my house or was it Rachel? I can't tell because I was just talking to them. That's it. And yep. Yep. Right. Exactly. So, right. Even if you do know where they're coming from, doesn't mean that, I mean, and if you think of it from law enforcement's point of view, you have to be a little bit sympathetic because if I call up my local police and I'm like, hey, you know, Alexi in Russia just 
broke into my bank account. They're like, well, what, are, what are we going to do with that? You know, well, it's theoretically possible, but, you know, it's tough. They're going to probably so. ask you, where's your bank bank located? And if it's not in their jurisdiction, they're going to exactly. defer it to someone yeah. else. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry. Go call New York. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. And with that, we are going to pause today's discussion with Jonathan Knudsen. We're going to pick it back up next Tuesday, part two, and you don't want to miss it. So to all of our listeners out there, thanks again for joining us this week. And a huge thanks to Jonathan for joining us and being part of our two-part episode. So until next time, be safe. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. 